Weston. I'm a sophomore. I'm going to be reading the scripture tonight. It's from a lot of passages, so just follow along with me. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. For everything there is a season, and a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us before we get into this passage and um, all of what Weston read for us. Lord Jesus, before you are ever a teacher or a wise sage, your Redeemer and Savior, friend of sinners, a God who in your flesh looked sexually shamed, looked relational failures in the eye, and the eyes that looked at them were eyes of compassion and care and love and tenderness, and they were eyes that invited those people just like us to yourself. So, Lord, um, we've lived a good bit of life, two decades, some of us more. It's a lot of time to make mistakes. It's a lot of time to build up a list of regrets. It's a lot of time to get ourselves confused or ashamed. And so, Jesus, um, we pray that you would come and be Savior and be Redeemer tonight. Also, teacher, but be all of those things and be a Redeemer first. Let us find refuge in you tonight as we talk about these things that you find very important. Pray this in your name. Amen. I hope that one theme that you're beginning to pick up on if you've been around even a handful of weeks this fall is that the story you think you're living in shapes the way you live. The story that you think you're in shapes the way you live. So if we were to borrow an example from last week's conversation, uh, if you're dating right now and you think that dating, uh, the narrative of dating of what, or what dating is, dating is kind of a pseudo marriage, 
then it's natural that you're going to start feeling like you're married and eventually acting like you're married. Or if you're not dating, but you believe that narrative that dating is kind of like a mini marriage with all the weight of the world on it, um, maybe you're someone who threw in the towel with dating before you ever even gave it a try because it was so overwhelming, daunting, and intimidating. The story you think you're living in shapes the way you live in it. That means there's a lot of wisdom in discerning what stories we're living in and the stories that we're listening to. Again, if you've been around a while, uh, we're, we, we try to always interpret this passage and we try to interpret our moment and our culture so that we know how these passages come alive and help us reimagine our lives today. That's why we talk so much about this stuff. There's wisdom in discerning what stories you and I are living in, grew up in, listening to, absorbing, because it shapes how we live, what we're doing, what we expect. There's a woman named um, Esther Perel. She is uh, kind of TED Talk famous. She's a psychotherapist. I don't believe she's a believer. And I, I saw an interview of her a few weeks ago and uh, came straight over to the file for this sermon and put this in. I was like, this is amazing. She said, in our secularized society, romantic love has become the most important engine of the Western psyche. In other words, to use the language that I've used the past couple of minutes, um, it's the dominant story shaping the way all of us think about dating, romance, sex, all of that. It's the engine of the Western psyche, she says. She, she went on, she said, we turn to romantic love for things that we used to turn to religion for, like ecstasy or meaning or wholeness or transcendence. All of those things we used to look for in the sanctuary of the divine. The interview goes on, they start talking about different things, but it circles back to this issue later on. And she goes on and she says, she's putting herself kind of in the persona of someone in a modern dating relationship and, and how we think. And she says, I want you, the other person in the relationship, I want you to offer me security, stability, predictability. I want you to give me transcendence and awe and mystery and surprise. And then she looked up and she said, one person is supposed to give us what in the past an entire village provided. What used to take an entire community of people to provide, um, now we pin those expectations and hopes on one person, that magical somebody, that, that person out there that's going to complete me. They're the puzzle piece that's going to finish my puzzle. And I'm never going to feel anything negative in that relationship or experience anything negative in that relationship because I found the one. That's what this kind of modern romance or this narrative is that she's talking about. And lest you think it's new, about 90 years before she gave this interview, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, in one of his essays, An Allegory of Love, he said, this romantic kind of this romantic narrative caused a change which has left no corner of our ethics, imagination, or daily lives unchanged. So it's not like this is some new trend that like happened around middle school or something. It's like it's, it's the world your mom and dad grew up in and your grandparents and your great-grandparents grew up in too. Which is to say this, there's a 100% chance this is the way you think about romance and dating and sexuality and all these things. There's no way we could have escaped it. It's everywhere. It's the backdrop of every show. It's in every song. It's in our culture. It's in us. 
And again, the story you're living in shapes the way that you live. And so this is what's shaping um, who you think is dateable and who you don't think, who you think is not dateable, who you're attracted to and who you're not, who you notice and who you don't. If you have a type, this narrative probably had more to do than anything else that kind of filled out that type. If you feel like you're ready to date or not ready to date, this probably had more to do with crystallizing that sense inside of you of like, I'm not ready for that, or I really want that. It has everything to do with what we expect from boyfriends and girlfriends, what you expect dating to be like, how you define dating. Make sense? The story that we live in shapes how we live. And lots of people inside the church and outside the church are saying the same thing. This is the story. This is the narrative this kind of apocalyptic romance, this messianic romance, I guess we could say, right? It's in our guts, but it's not from God. And you got to keep listening because I'm not throwing it all out. But I'm saying that story, the way those pieces are connected together isn't from God. And that's why in this particular instance, um, this proverb, 28, 26, is true, that whoever trusts in his own mind or this in his own narrative or in his own gut. Walks in a path of foolish, but she who walks in wisdom will be delivered. He who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And this is God also opening up a door and saying, do you need deliverance? If there's a 100% chance that this has infected all of us in one way or another, do you need deliverance out of it? This is the way out. This is the way out. And what we really need is deliverance from a, a secular narrative of messianic romance. This is the piece of your soul that you've been missing. And if you get it, everything will be right. We need deliverance from that secular narrative of romance is God to a gospel narrative of romance reveals God or romance is a sweet gift for God, from God that we're to enjoy. Uh, enjoy with another person. Enjoy in serving another person. So we need to rethink romance from the bottom up, which I said is what we've been trying to do for the past couple of weeks. And we need to let God show us what romance is, what these relationships are like, and how we're to live in them, maybe date in a way that honors him. So for that to happen, we're going to have to reorient our minds Paul is very kind. A thousand years after Solomon wrote these Proverbs, the Apostle Paul comes along, and, and Paul um, gives us kind of the invitation of a lifetime, and it's really the invitation for a lifetime to be spent lingering and uh, putting its roots down in what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. Paul says, obsess on those things. Fixate on those things. Fill your thoughts with those things. Tell your mind to go to those X's on the map. And we get to do that even in these passages as God shows us um, what it's like, as he shows us what story we actually live in. The best person I've ever heard capture the true story of romance is Ray Ortland. He said this, he said, romance isn't some evolutionary like mechanism for the survival of the human species. By the way, if you believe it is, the second you embrace an idea like that, it kills it. 
the magic, the mystery, the chemistry, the attraction, the, that intangible sense of just gravitating towards somebody who is just sweeps you off your feet and you say, well, that's just, that's just a dopamine release, some evolutionary advantageous thing to kind of propagate the planet with more people. Boy, what a Casanova. To define it that way is to deny its existence. But he says, so romance isn't some product of evolution for the survival of the species. Romance came from God. Romance reveals God. Then he says this, ultimate reality is not some cold, dark, blank space out there going on forever with no meaning or message or emotion. Ultimate reality. In other words, the true story is romance. Because God does not love us with a chilly indifference, but with warm or hot passion. And the gospel reveals that is who God is. Now, uh, maybe we can leave that up there for a second. I want to ask you, what would be different in your life if this was the story that you were alert to or waking up to or believed? As opposed to kind of the messianic, romantic story of the West. What would be different if this is the story that our relationships, our dating, our interest, our attraction, our crushes were happening inside of? What would be different about your thoughts, about our actions? Um, I think, do you remember about a month or a month and a half ago, um, we, were, we were talking about 2 Corinthians 5 and kind of main character syndrome, and we were, uh, aside, a throwaway application that we were talking about is like, have you ever thought or said or heard people say, like, I want to keep Jesus as the center of my relationship? And we were kind of saying, like, we appreciate the sentiment. I'm positive I said that at some point or believe that or everything else like that. Um, but, we, but we said we've kind of got it backwards to, like, think that Jesus is some tiny little object that I can go, like, smuggle in and bring into my relationship. What it reveals is that you didn't see him there to begin with. And we've got to find some artificial way to kind of bring him in and let him have a place in our relationship. And that's a very different paradigm or headspace than what this is talking about. If ultimate reality is romance, if it's God's passionate pursuit of his people, making the unclean clean, of chasing us down in love, then it actually means all of our little stories are happening inside of that. It means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always in the frame. We don't have to go get him and try to bring him back. All of your thoughts about your relationship is this is happening inside of this bigger relationship, this bigger pursuit, this bigger romance. The, the practical difference that it might make is we realize um, I'm trying to figure out this relationship thing with this girl or with this guy. We're, we're trying to figure out whether we want to date or not before the face of God or we're dating before the face of God. There's some way in which what we're experiencing um, can help us understand how he pursues us, how he thinks about us. That's a very different experience, right? Very different. Categorically different than this, um, this cultural narrative that, that we believe. So we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight just listening to him reorient us in this new story to kind of get us into the new headspace, to show us a new way to think about this. Um, and just to bring you up to speed, because this tiny piece of last week is important if you weren't here. But we said there's basically three different categories of relationship that God created between men and women, a marriage relationship, a husband and a wife, that makes sense, the Bible talks a lot about it, a family relationship, 
mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. The Bible talks a lot about that. And then friend or neighbor relationships, how to treat and love and serve your neighbors. The Bible doesn't talk about dating per se. That's kind of our way, uh, our culture's way of finding out how a guy and a girl who are interested in each other and want to explore a future navigate that. But which folder, which of those three folders does God file dating into? Is it a kind of marriage, a pseudo-marriage, with kind of the privileges? Like, we get to do married stuff because it's kind of a marriage, or I get to kind of expect married things of you or think about you in married ways because it's kind of a marriage. No, we said it's filed under that friendship category. It's a special kind of friendship. But we didn't just say it's a friendship. We said a lot last week about how it's a special kind of friendship. It's different than just a friendship. What are some of those elements? If we replay kind of the highlight reel, well, Song of Songs, we looked at that passage about that stealing of hearts. With one glance of your eyes, you stole my heart. This almost involuntary, like, attraction to each other. Something bigger than you and your your thought process is going on. We talked about that fascination or that intrigue with the other person. It's not just two people on a parallel journey, but it's two people who have become fascinated by the other, captivated by the other. That deep delight in each other's presence, that evaluation piece of the relationship where you realize this relationship is headed somewhere. We're trying to get clarity about whether we continue to move down this road, whether it's wise, whether we want to get married. I don't know if y'all have ever um, read the story of Jacob and Rachel. Uh, it's, it's one story uh, of a man and a woman who met in the Bible who experienced some of this. It is not prescriptive. This is not a template for what's got to be there if this is a person that you should date. It's simply a description of one man and one woman and what they experienced. But it's a, it's a vivid picture of what we're talking about. Um, Genesis 29, uh, Jacob had met Rachel and gone to work at her kind of family compound uh, for her father for about a month. And at the end of that month, this is how the passage describes Jacob kind of seeing Rachel, kind of what was going on between them after that month. Said Rachel had a lovely figure. She was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. And Jacob tells her dad, Laban, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter's, younger daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. Like this is the original I will walk 500 miles or whatever other love song that's been written. Seven years, double the amount of time you're going to spend in school probably for her. Um, And the passage goes on to describe a lot of these other like subjective or intangible, just like this feeling, this compulsion, this attraction towards each other. And it gives us a sense of that mystery and the chemistry and the attraction that distinguishes um, just friends from a special kind of friendship. There is a difference in just friends and a special kind of friendship or what we call dating. Now, it's not that easy to define, though. Like, we could sit around and talk about this, and you could share some experiences, or people who are married now could reflect back over their dating relationship, and it would still be hard to pin down how to define our words and what exactly we're talking about. Proverbs 30, 18 to 19. I love this. There are three things that he says are too amazing for me. And he's not just talking about, that's amazing, I love it. He's saying, turns my mind into a labyrinth, into a maze. I can't figure it out. 
like I'm in awe about it. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I don't understand. Here's the three things that amaze him. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas. What's the fourth that he doesn't understand? The way of a man with a young woman. Now, ladies, I said this last week, Proverbs was written exclusively to young men in the king's court being trained up for royalty. Uh, We can reverse the gender on all of these Proverbs. The way of a woman with a man. The way of a man with a woman. There's something mysterious about it. Here's the side application of that. If you are someone who finds yourself often beginning sentences about the other gender, the other sex, or the men in RUF, or the women in RUF with like, I just wish they would all just call it a date, just be intentional, or just say yes to the date. I'm not asking you to marry me just to get coffee or go on a run. If you find yourself often starting sentences, just, I just, I just wish you're oversimplifying something that the Bible itself says is complex and mysterious. What this allows us to do is to be a little bit more gracious and compassionate with each other. There are a lot more other explanations of, of why a guy might not just go ahead and call it a date right away. He might be trying to protect your heart. He might be doing a bad job of it, but that would be a more charitable interpretation. It's not always true. Sometimes he's just messing up. Uh, Her saying no to the date might not be because she's worried about where it's going to go. She just might not be interested in you, and it's okay to say that. We can give charity and grace and compassion there, but we can't oversimplify it. That's when we end up resenting people and looking down at them. It's mysterious. It's amazing. It is hard. It's difficult to understand. Many of you relate to that. Dating can be difficult to understand. Romance can be difficult to understand. Even to figure out your own heart in a relationship. Do I like this person? Do I not? Will I still like this person? It can be pretty mysterious. Well, the other thing that we saw last week and that kind of flows into this week is that dating is... For evaluating. Dating is not an aimless relationship. Um, it's not just like a recreational relationship. And look, uh, as an aside, y'all are not like uh, high schoolers. Uh, if you were, I might say, uh, like, so is there wisdom um, in letting your son or daughter like go out on some dates while they're under your kind of under your watch and under your house to kind of help them learn the ropes of how to relate? Maybe, maybe sure, that's fine. But um, here, Um, At our age, dating is for evaluating in the midst of community. It is for over time, as you forge this friendship, um, as you delight in each other's presence, as you learn each other, learn how to love each other, learn how to serve each other. There's something going on in the back. And this is not like nerd emoji. I've got my clipboard to see, like, are you, like, stacking up today? I'm going to come back with the results in six months and let you know. We're not talking about evaluation in a clinical way, um, but you're observing this person at a a depth, and you're observing their character, how they treat you, how they talk to you, and they're observing you, and hopefully you're observing you to some degree too, as you're paying attention to that. Um, Dating is for evaluating, and part of the evaluation um, that we have to do on the very front end is evaluating the timing, and this is Ecclesiastes 3.5, which 
is taken out of context, but it's going through a litany of things that require a lot of discernment and wisdom to know when's the right time. When's the right time? If you have found yourself to be a person who has always felt like from your first conscious moment, like, I want a girlfriend, I want a boyfriend, and that's never, you've always been on that spot, um, this is for you. Because maybe the past 10 years has not equally been a wise time for you to make yourself available for the potential of this kind of relationship. There's a lot of wisdom and discernment to know when is this wise, when is this unwise, when would this be helpful, when would this not be helpful. Um, For example, what might be wise reasons to refrain from embracing, as the language of that passage says? Um, I don't know. This one, this one can change on a dime if you uh, meet someone that you're really into, but don't have the time to forge a deep friendship in an honoring way. Emphasis on that phrase, in an honoring way. Open yourself up to, the, to a relationship or the beginnings of a relationship when you don't have the resources to give to him or to give to her to forge that friendship, which is going to risk hurting them. Have in humility, you or you and a friend, as you talk about this, realize you might not be mature enough to journey towards such a large commitment at the other end of this relationship. And you just feel like, I might be ready for the first month of dating. I don't feel mature enough or like I've worked through parts of my past or past relationships that are still very much live grenades in my headspace. I might be ready for the first month, the honeymoon stage. I'm not ready for a year and a half. But if dating is for evaluating, if dating is unto figuring out marriage, you know on day one where the relationship is aimed. Clarity about that, either no or yes. But that would be a wise reason to consider refraining from opening yourself up to that. Maybe you feel like something is going on inside of you, around you, that would not give you the presence of mind or body to be able to be with that person, to care for them, to learn them. There's seasons when you want to focus on the Lord or ministry, and a dating relationship would be distracting. It would pull you away from him. There's wisdom in, for example, uh, you're a freshman. You know, for whatever reason, there's no way marriage is in the cards for you until after graduation, and you're looking down the road of four years. And you're wise, and you know yourself well enough to know that your sex drive is a lot greater than most. And you're like, how in the world, in the real world, Am I going to remain walking in integrity and honor with this girl or with this guy for four years when I have no no way to accelerate that journey towards marriage? That would be a wise reason to refrain from a relationship that on day one is has marriage in view on the distant horizon. For some of us, you want to experience a deeper level of repentance, a deeper hope in your struggle against porn or some other addiction, and you think it would be more loving to that person out there to make a little more progress in that or see a little more growth in that or a little more freedom in that before they're brought into that. I have respected so many of you so deeply, guys and girls, who for various of these reasons have, to put it crudely, kind of taken yourself off the market at different seasons because you discerned your heart. And I've seen you benefit magnificently from that. 
and the relationships that might have come on the other side of that be much richer and deeper because of that. All this does is it says we get to pump the brakes a little bit if we're of a mindset that like, I gotta find that guy now, I gotta find that girl now. And it says, well, now, what if now's not the best time for you, for them? It also means uh, we evaluate um, who we're dating uh, to marry. And I wanna say this to the side because some of you might not have been here last week when we qualified this a lot more. I'm gonna be brief, but when I say that a dating relationship has marriage in view from the beginning. I'm not saying if you say yes to go run at the botanical gardens, that's like a mini proposal and a mini acceptance. Uh, there is a friendship to forge. There's character to observe. There's attraction to ripen. There's challenges to, to go through. And all of that takes time. And there's really no rushing that. So I'm not talking about a utilitarian relationship where you've got that clipboard out, but I'm saying it is not aimless and purposeless. If it's aimless and purposeless, it's meaningless. And at least one person's gonna get hurt really bad. Grown-up relationships um, can see way off on the horizon the potential destination. That's in view, that's what we mean of evaluating um, for marriage even from the beginning, but it also means we evaluate who we date to marry. We've talked about the friendship part of this or the potential for that kind of a friendship um, developing, but to sum up a lot of what's on the page um, beneath here in one, one line, we're wanting to marry someone who's impressed by God and impresses you. Someone who is genuinely impressed by God and that's not something you can fake. That's not, oh, they're religious. They're spiritual. Uh, they grew up in the church. They come to RUF every night. Somebody with momentum in their life. Um, God has caught their attention. He is beautiful to them. They're growing. I don't want to overplay this and say, like, you know, they're like the Pope. But there's someone, who, there's someone who is, they seem more attracted to him than they do to you. To a godly man or woman, that is attractive. And that is safe. Someone who is impressed with the Lord and who truly impresses you. We talked last week about someone that you respect, that you look up to, that you look at her and you say, God, I want to learn from her. Oh, if I could become like her in these two or three areas. Oh, if I could... Um, I, I admire this so much about his character, about him. It means we evaluate character, that word. Um, again, along the journey, along the forging of the friendship, along the date nights, along the whatever, the, the road trips, we are kind of low-key in the back of our mind, um, paying attention to see their character formed. True character is like an old castle, not like a sand castle. If you've ever traveled one of these old castles, you know that thing took a long time to be built, and it's got like moss growing on it. It's been there. It took a long time to build that thing, and it's time-tested and proven. And a sand castle is built in a few hours and gone in a few hours. Um, anybody can be polite and on their best behavior in the early stages of a dating relationship but not for long. 
Life will happen, challenges will come, you'll hit speed bumps, someone will annoy the other or hurt the other or sin against the other, and that's when character comes out. Or as you observe this person when they don't think you're around, you've observed how they treat little kids. Nobody has to get to know that kid's name, but they do. You observe that they go up and talk to strangers in this room or the socially awkward, that they have friends who don't all just like look or are just like them, and you admire that. Here is somebody who loves. You've heard them over the years or over the months maybe tell you stories about um, beef they had with their roommate, uh, but then a few months later you get an update and it's like they, they, they struggle to work through it. They don't have a long list of dead relationships that they threw in the towel on. But they have a, relationship, a list of relationships that they're working on. That's what I mean by character that's a castle. I'm not talking about perfection. When they sin against you, there's, there's, there's some kind of a reflexive coming back to you and saying, hey, that was wrong of me. My tone was wrong. What I did was wrong. That was me, not you. But sandcastle character, that's the kind of character that just promises to change so that you won't break up with them. It's the kind of character that just gets dragged to church but never necessarily wants to be there. Um, it's the kind of character that keeps pushing the, the limits with physical intimacy but always politely apologizes afterwards. I'll try better, but never does. That's Sandcastle character. And you can't build anything on that because it will collapse. And that's what's going on in some of these Proverbs um, Proverbs 26, um, God himself is saying, this is hard to find. This is hard to find. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. They're out there. Are you becoming that person for the other? And then he says this, better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife or a quarrelsome husband. Someone who can't take yes for an answer. Nitpicking. Um, you've never lived up to their expectations, so they'll fight you on anything. You fall short at everything. Um, Solomon is not writing to old married men. He's writing to probably teenage boys who are not married. He's saying, guys, girls, as you evaluate um, who you want to forge this kind of a friendship with, as you evaluate who you might want to marry, pay attention to their character. Don't fall for the sandcastle character. But look at that depth of character. And he says, don't settle. Because even in that proverb I just read, um, he says that's going to be a hard, hard, constricted life. Proverbs 31, 30, he goes on, and he says, charm is deceitful. No one knows they're being deceived. That's the problem with deceit. You're not in on the joke. Charm, personality, beauty, um, all of those things can be great and can be gifts, but if that is obscuring your ability to see deeper into them or to see patterns in them, it's going to lead you astray. Charm is deceitful, beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's what I'm talking about. To fear the Lord is to be impressed by him. Again, are we talking about this uh, you know, marathon running Christian that never has any problems, never has any cramps? No, we're talking about a weak, limping Christian but one for whom God is real and alive and a living reality in their lives. This pushes us on to the next, and I'm going to speed up a little bit here, but 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to Christians in 
new converts, a lot of whom were already married when, when they became Christians, some of whom the husband and the wife were converted together, some just the wife or just the husband, and now they're in this mixed marriage, and they're asking Paul, what do we do? And he said, don't break up. Stay together. In other words, he's saying, um, to find out you're married to a non-believer isn't a deal breaker because Jesus is that good. But he's also saying, don't, don't knowingly seek marriage with someone who is not alive in Jesus if you're alive in Jesus. There's a couple of reasons why. Um, in some of the most trying, challenging moments of your life, those moments when your faith is most visible, most exposed, your white-knuckled grip on the Lord Jesus is most visible, your husband or your wife is not going to be able to relate to you in that moment or understand you. And that's a different kind of loneliness. To know that this best friend, this, this soulmate, this spouse doesn't get me at my deepest level. They might want to, but they can't. It's also because people aren't static. People are in motion. We're becoming new people. Every 10 years, it's like there's a lot that's different about you. You might feel super close right now to your boyfriend or your girlfriend who is not a believer, and you are. And you're like, but we're right here. But your trajectories are aimed in different directions. Jesus is changing you from one degree of glory to the next all the time. Your inner person is being renewed day by day. You're headed more and more into likeness with him, and they're not. So you might feel close right now, but what about five years, 10 years, 40 years? As you move further apart, Paul is saving us um, from that path, even as he holds hope alive in the rest of that chapter with the believers, saying, love that husband, love that, well, love that wife who doesn't know the Lord, and see God change them too. I want to wrap up... Um, kind of a lot of this stuff here, and some of this we're going to hit again next week as we begin to talk about marriage itself and sex in marriage and sex outside of marriage. But to wrap up this middle section and begin to just finish this up for tonight and push pause, um, as I think about all of this and zoom way out, and you think about proper compatibility of character, of chemistry, of all these different words we've thrown around tonight, what, is it, what does it mean when we kind of like put it in the compatibility blender? How do we think about, am I right for this person and are they right for me? Uh, when I talk with couples in premarital counseling, I kind of boil it down and, and, and there's three kinds of compatibility that I think are important. And I think they, they lift off from these passages we've talked about tonight. There's a creational compatibility. This is the one and only piece of compatibility that culture is really aware of. It, it majors only on this. But we can affirm a lot in it too, that creational compatibility that, um, can I be me around you? Or just to be with you, do I have to kind of like suppress um, the things that I love to do, the way my mind thinks, my personality? I'm not, I'm not talking about like um, bad things I'm doing or bad habits or sins. I'm talking about is there a sense that I can be at home with you, at ease with you, enjoy being around you and you with me? That's a creational compatibility. Why is it important? As Paul David Tripp said, it's easier to love people that you like. Um, all of us are called to love everybody, even our enemies. Isn't it a lot harder to love people you don't like? 
that creational compatibility is, is getting at. Do, do I like them? Do they, do, I, do they like me? There's also a, a deeper compatibility in sin and suffering. As you get to know her, as you get to know him, and you learn what burdens them, what holds them back, what trips them up, even as you learn the dark sides of them, what they wish wasn't true about them but is, do you see some sense of compatibility there of where she is uniquely weak, you're stronger? Where he is uniquely stuck, you're still mobile. In my relationship with Anna, one of the biggest places that I was stuck was, I've told you all this before, so I'll be super brief, but just OCD, analysis paralysis. I was terrified. How do I know? And it wasn't a question I was asking about Anna. It was just, it was the first time in my life I actually had to trust God, and I didn't feel safe with that, and I was stuck for a year and a half on that. I was immobilized, and God blessed me so much by letting my friend in that relationship still be mobile and strong in that area. What if Anna also was just incapacitated in that area? How do you do a relationship? How do, how do you do a relationship if you're both the most weak in the exact same spot and there's no compliment, complementariness there or compatibility there? A wife and a husband are helpers to each other, burden lifters, encouragers, the ones who spur each other on and carry each other's weight. Is there any sense of you being a little stronger where they're a little weaker? And then redemptive compatibility. Tim Keller calls this, have you gotten a glimpse of the future person that you're dating? The person as the spirit gets his hand on them, his hands on them in the next 10 years, 20 years, and you get a glimpse of who they're becoming in Christ. You're like, I wanna be a part of helping her get there. I wanna walk that road between here and there with him. Um, as Jesus gives him a better, better handle on his self-control, on his anger, he's going to be an amazing man, an amazing father. And I want to help walk that road with him. That's catching a glimpse of your future self and helping them towards that. I'm going to push pause there tonight. This is another week with a lot that we've looked at um, in those passages. Before we finish, I just want to say what I said in the prayer earlier we're 20-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 42-year-olds. None of this is theoretical to us. All of us have history. All of us have skeletons in the closet. All of us have relationships or moments or memories that we wished had gone a different way but didn't. And so we're not just here to open our Bibles and learn how to go and do this. But we need a God who can not just deal with our present and teach us or our future and form us and shape us, but can deal with our past too and the way the past affects us. And that's what Jesus has given his life to do, is not just to teach you a way to navigate forward, but to free you from that past, to cleanse you from that past, and to mean no matter where you are or what you've done or how stuck you feel or how intimidated you feel, you can start over. He's still faithful. He's still at work. Let's pray to him. Lord, um, we pray tonight that, again, like we did last week, you would take just one or two little pieces of this, push it into the deep places of our heart. You know our stories. You know the one or two places that we get the most stuck, we're most confused, we're most deceived, most hurt. Just pray that you would pastor us with your word and bring healing. 
pray this in your name.